Chapter 19 of Pocket Island. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. Pocket Island by Charles Clark Munn. Chapter 19 Among the Wounded. At nearly noon, the day after the Battle of Peach Creek, the searchers for wounded came upon Manson, still alive but delirious. Of that ghastly battlefield, or the long agony of that wounded boy, I hesitate to speak. No pen can describe either, and to even faintly portray them is but to add gloom to a narrative already replete with it. The twenty-four hours of his indescribable pain and torturing thirst were only broken by a few hours of merciful delirium, when he was once more a boy and living his simple, carefree life on the farm, or happy with Liddy. When found, he knew it not. When examined by a surgeon, that stern man shook his head and remarked, "'Slim chance for you, poor devil. Too much blood gone already.' For two weeks he was delirious most of the time, but his rugged constitution saved him, and when he showed signs of gaining and could be moved, he was taken to the hospital at Washington. Once there he began to fail again, for the long journey had been too much for him. "'He won't last long,' said the doctor in charge to the nurse. "'Better ask him if there is anyone he wishes to see.' When he made his rounds the next morning, Manson was worse and again out of his head. "'He has been wandering in his mind all night,' was the nurse's report, "'and he talks about fishing and catching things in traps. "'And there is a girl mixed in it all. "'Case of sweetheart, I guess.' That day the wounded boy rallied a little and began to think and bit by bit the sane hours of the past few weeks came back to him. How near to the shores of eternal silence his bark had drifted, he little knew. The long hours of agony in the battlefield since the moment he had instinctively crawled behind a rock had been a delirium of despair broken only by visions of vague and shadowy import that he could not grasp. All that he thought was that death must soon end his misery, and he hoped it might come soon. At times he had bitten and torn the sleeves of his coat, soaked with blood from his shattered arm, or beaten his head against the dry earth in his agony. How long it had lasted he could not tell, and the last that he remembered was looking at the moon, and then he seemed to be drifting away, and all pain ceased. Then all around him he could hear voices, and over his head a roof, and he felt as if awakened from some horrible dream. With his well arm he felt of the other, and found it was bound with splints. The faces he could see were all strange, but the men wore the familiar blue uniform, and he knew they were not enemies. He was carried to a freight car and laid in it, where he took a long, jolting ride that was all a torture, at the end of which he was taken in an open wagon to a long, low building and laid on one of the many narrow cots which were ranged in double rows. 
He could not raise his head or turn his body. He could only rest utterly helpless and inert, and indifferent to either life or death. Of Liddy he thought many times, and of his mother and father as well. And he wondered what they would say and how they would feel when the tidings reached them. Then a kind-faced woman came and lifted his head and held it while he took medicine or sipped broth, and then he was wandering beside a brook again or in green meadows. Later he could see the white cots all about and the unsealed roof over his head and the same motherly face, and he was asked who his friends were and whom he would like to send for, and from that time on he began to hope. Would the one human being on earth he cared most to see come so far? And could she if she would? And would life still be left in him when she reached his side? Or would he have been carried out of the long, low room, dead, as he had seen others carried? He wondered what she would say or do when she came, and oh, if he could only know whether she was coming! He could see the door at one corner of the room where she must enter, and it was a little comfort to look at that. Then a resolution and a feeling that he must live and be there when she came began to grow upon him. He knew four days had passed since she had been sent for, and he could now count the hours, and from that time on his eyes were seldom turned away from that door while he was awake. Did ever hours pass more slowly than those? Could it be possible? I think not. He had no means of knowing the time except to ask the nurse, and when night came he knew that sleep might bridge a few hours more speedily. Six days passed, and then in the gray light of the next morning he opened his weary waiting eyes and saw bending over him the fair face that for two long years and all through his hopeless agony he had longed for, and as he reached his hand to her in mute gratitude, unable to speak, he felt it clasped, and the next instant she was on her knees beside him and pressing a tear-wet face upon it and he was listening to the first prayer she ever uttered. Gone now like a flash of light were all those weary months of heart-hunger. Gone all the agony and despair of that day and night on the battlefield. Gone all the hours of pain through which he counted the moments one by one as he watched the door. No more was he lying upon a narrow cot listening to the moans of the wounded, as he saw the dead carried out. Instead was he resting on a bed of violets and listening to the heart-throbs of thankfulness and supplication murmured by an angel. And if ever a prayer reached the heavenly throne, it was that one. When it was finished and her loving blue eyes were looking into his, he whispered, Lady, God bless you. Now I shall live. Such is the power of love. I feel that here and now I must beg the kind reader's pardon for introducing so much that is painful and sad in the lives of these two, fitted by birth and education for peace and simple home happiness. 
War, and all its horrors, is not akin to them, and was never meant to be. Rather should their footsteps lead them where the bobolink sings as he circles over a green meadow, and the blue water-lilies stoop to kiss the brook that ripples through it, or where the fields of grain bend and billow in the summer breeze, or the old mill-wheel splashes while the white flowers in the pond above smile in the sunlight. If the patient reader will but follow their lives a little further, only peace and happiness and all the gentle voices of nature shall be their companions. For a month, while cheered by the presence of her devoted father, Liddy nursed that feeble spark of life back to health and strength as only a tender and heroic woman could. All the dread aftermath of war that daily assailed her every sense did not make her falter, but through all those scenes of misery and death she bravely stood by her post, and her love imposed duty. How hard a task it was, no one unaccustomed to such surroundings can even faintly realize, and it need not be dwelt upon. When she had fulfilled the most godlike mission ever confided to woman's hands, that of caring for the sick and dying, and when returning strength made it possible to remove her charge, those three devoted ones returned to the hills of old New England. How fair the peaceful valley of Southton seemed once more, and how clear and distinct the blue hills were outlined in the pure September air. The trees were just gaining the annual glory of autumn color, but to Liddy they brought no tinge of melancholy for her heart was full of sweetest joy. She had saved the one life dearest on earth to her, and now the voices of nature were but sounds of heavenly music. And how dear to her was her home once more, and all about it. The brook that rippled near sounded like the low tinkle of sweet bells, and the maple by the gate whispered once again, the tender thoughts of the love that had first come to her beneath them. She was like a child in her happiness, and every thought and every impulse was touched by the mystic, magic wand of love. Few ever know the supreme joy that came to her, and none can except they walk with bleeding hearts and weary feet through the valley of despair, bearing the burden of a loved one's life. The first evening she was alone with her father, she came as a child would, to sit upon his knee, and putting her arms around his neck, whispered, "'Father, I never knew until now what it means to be happy, and how good and kind you could be to me, and how little it is in my power to pay it all back. I can only love and care for you as long as I live, or as long as God spares your life.' And be it said, she kept her promise. End of chapter 19 Recording by Roger Moline